This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 122. Today on our show, James Manger. The Spanish flu is called that, misnamed that. It really started mostly in the United States because the United States was in the middle of the First World War. They were not willing to talk about it in public. And so that all newspaper uh, reporting about the flu was suppressed. When the public finally started getting information about it, and this is sort of late in the summer of 1918, they heard about it from Spain. James is the Genealogy and Local History Reference Librarian from the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County. He talks with us about the flu epidemic of 1918, the library's genealogy resources, and how you can use them to trace your roots, the oldest books in the library, changing technology, and a bunch more. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and just chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now, let's talk to James Manger. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati. C-I-N-C-I-N-N-E-T-I-Cincinnati She came down from Cincinnati Just maybe think of me once in a while I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati uh, I guess a good place to start would be, you. what is your position at the library? Well, my title is Reference Librarian. I work in the Genealogy Local History Department. So essentially, I uh, work with the public answering questions related to those two topics, that is, genealogy and the history of this locality, of Cincinnati area. Aha. And and that would include, you know, uh, southwestern Ohio, also all of Ohio in a certain way, and also to some extent northern Kentucky. Okay. Uh, that's because we uh, spoke to somebody a couple of months ago from the library. Lisa had set that up, and uh, I thought we were going to get someone more like you. And we got a nice young man who works down in the, uh, I guess, in the services center, and we learned a lot. We didn't know you could, you could make banners down there and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Oh, yeah. That is yeah, yeah. So, um, but we were, I was hoping more to talk to someone, you know, because we, we had a lot of questions. And he knew his stuff, though, about the history of the library as well. But we kind of wanted to do more of a, like a deep dive, not only on the library, but on, uh, you know, history in, in Cincinnati as well. So this is perfect. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll get the preliminaries out of the way. Uh, are you from Cincinnati originally? No, I'm not. I am from the Cleveland area. Yay, me too. What part? Uh, I'm from, well, I grew up in Bay Village, Ohio. No kidding. My wife uh, is from Aurora. I am from, uh, I am from Mentor. Uh, okay, great. Yeah, and my daughter right now lives in Lakewood. Wonderful, yeah. That's yeah. great. I, I was technically born in Lakewood, so. <laughs> okay, there, yeah, there you go. All right, mm-hmm. super. So, um, Bay Village High School? Yes, yeah. I did. A friend of mine used to live behind it, so. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, I, I know that well. All right. So how do you get interested? Well, what did you, you go to college? Is your degree in history? What's uh, how do you find yourself yeah. in this line of work, I guess? Yeah, my, my undergraduate degree is in history. Uh, I went to Case Western Reserve University and uh, started off in a more technical field, uh, sciences, te- you know, engineering, that kind of thing, and then decided that it wasn't for me and that I was really more interested in uh, history. So I switched majors and basically got a degree from them, primarily focused on European history. And... Um, I came here to Cincinnati to maybe continue my graduate work at the University of Cincinnati, and I did do that for a while. But uh, after that, I, I found that I really was far more interested in working in a library setting. So at that point, I um, be, you know, applied and became a member of the Cincinnati Public Library. That was in 1984, so it's been a very long career for me. 
Originally, I started, in fact, I was there for a number of years in the government and business department. Uh, this is when the library still, uh, in the main library, I mean, I've been at Maine my whole life, uh, career. I have not been at a branch. And what, what that means is that the branches have a different focus. Maine, however, uh, at that time, and to some extent still does have a sort of specialty subject focus, particularly for reference librarians. So in some ways we could um, work in and sort of do a lot of very in-depth re research for people in a number of different topics. Eventually, the thing with the government and business, I did it did match some of my interests, you know, particularly in the areas of uh, government relationships and uh, that kind of thing. But eventually, when the library had a restructuring, this was about a decade ago. Excuse my dog is barking. This was about a decade ago, um, or actually, it's probably longer than that. Um, 15 years ago, um, that department, all of the various departments were kind of dissolved into one general reference and information department. And our de department was kind of pulled out as sort of a specialty, special reference department that dealt specifically with the local history of this area. And because we had so much material that was related to this locality, and also to focus on genealogy, which uh, was it was and is obviously a very huge uh, area of interest for people throughout the country. Obviously, if you see these ancestry commercials, ancestry.com, then you'll you'll realize how um, popular that topic is. Interestingly enough, I had already done a lot of my own family genealogy, at least on my father's side of the family, maybe several years before I was even picked for that job. So um, that was kind of an ironic aspect of that. And I have since being part of the department for the last 15 years have actually uh, expanded my uh, interest there. You know, I actually expanded my database of information about my own family using the resources that we have there. So anybody can come in and, and do that then? Even if, they, if they're not like you and I aren't from Cincinnati, but we, uh, we could still kind of use those resources to kind of track back? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. wow. Well, there yeah, you... obviously my family is from the Cleveland area, my father in particular, my mom, more from Pittsburgh area. But There you um, go. Yeah, uh, but they met in Cleveland and married and, and grew up there in that area. But yeah, it could, we have resources that could cover that cover the entire country uh, with regard to genealogy. For pretty strong focus in this area because I mean the Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky area, but we uh, also have things that can help you do uh, anything throughout the country. And uh, one of the things we do offer people is access to a version of the Ancestry.com database. Um, if you come in to a library location and sign in, with, well, you don't have to sign in with your library card, but you can sign in with a pass if you don't have a library card, and you can have access to that, right? And with that, you have an enormous uh, ability to track family members' ancestry uh, throughout anywhere in the world even, but especially all over the country. So it doesn't have to be uh, Cincinnati. Uh, you can, uh, it's uh, good for the whole country. Yeah, because I, I know some stuff going back to my grandparents and a little bit of my great-grandparents. I think my great-grandfather was a judge of some sort in Georgia. And I wow. know, I know places where the family, like my grandparents lived in Chicago for a while and then in Miami for a while. And uh, my dad was born in Chicago. So yeah, but I found a few things on the internet, but I've, uh, yeah, that would be really helpful. It sounds like to have a, uh, I guess a more concentrated database and, you know, some more intensive tools to be able to, to, to look more stuff up. I had no idea you could do that at the library. Yes. Yes, you can. That is something you can do here, uh, do at the library. Actually, uh, during the time of the COVID-19 uh, quarantine, uh, the 
State Library of Ohio, which is the one is the organization that supplies or pays for the contract with Ancestry, has actually uh, allowed it um, to be uh, accessed at home uh, to anyone who can sign in with a library card. Oh, I've got one of those. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I usually use so it for before, for free goal and overdrive. Like the our, our the contract that that was there before the licensing contract meant that Ancestry would provide it to libraries if you came to a library and signed in. Yeah, uh, but you couldn't do it from home. Whereas I, most of our other uh, research databases that you can access from the library's website, uh, you can do those from home under most circumstances, under normal circumstances. But in this case, during this period, we have, uh, well, not us, but the State Library of Ohio has expanded uh, access to Ancestry to beyond that limitation. That's so cool. So, can, and normally, when it's, when, those, when it's just normal times, can you go to a, a branch and do that, or do you have to come downtown? Nope, you can go uh, at a branch. Oh, okay, cool. All right. Yeah, I'm just... and and if you have a like a wireless device, like a laptop or a tablet or even your phone, uh, you can come in and use the Wi-Fi, and you can also have access to them. But it has to be at the library location. Okay, fair enough. That's a fair play, as the British say. Yeah, I only yeah. I remember on the uh, library. Well, I look I look for books, obviously, um, and then I also um, use Freegal and Overdrive a lot. And, um, yeah, and I was in the, I tell the story all the time to people that work at the library. I was in the Anderson branch one day and I walked in and I got my books that I had on hold and I whipped out my phone and I scanned and they're like, you know, no, we never see anybody using the app. And I'm like, who's not using the app? This is fantastic. You don't have to do it. You just walk in, look, grab your books that they held for you, scan the barcode, you're out the door. It's the greatest thing yeah. ever. Yeah. It is neat. Yeah. yeah, highly recommended. So, as far as like the the library in general and, and the historical art, what kind of things? What are some of the oldest things you have at the library? Be they books or any other kind of printed material? Well, I should point out that we have a uh, and have had a rare book uh, department for a number of years, and that is still in place. And that is uh, now in an area called the Cincinnati uh, Room. And our department is actually in charge of that area now. And that was part of the change that happened 15 years ago. We have a number of resources in that room that are related to Cincinnati history, like old books that were published from the 18, well, 1700s, 1800s, uh, very old uh, historical and essays and manuals and about all sorts of topics religion, steam engines, <laughs> everything. It's, it's an amazing resource. Some of the items in there are not necessarily related to Cincinnati history, though. The oldest objects we have are medieval, essentially. There's a book of hours that we have. We have a portion of the Gutenberg Bible, but even beyond that, we have a number of Bibles, a version of the King James Bible, not the not the original edition, but a somewhat later edition, but still published in the uh, 17 early 17th century. Um, and we have a number of of different resources like that. The Bible collection is actually a pretty substantial one. Uh, old rare Bibles. So I reckon uh, to look at some of that older stuff, you have to have some kind of special permissions and supervisions. Like if, a, if I'm an author writing a book on old-timey steam engines, and I, I know that the Cincinnati Library has an old steam engine manual, yeah, how, how do you go about, you know, it isn't like you can walk up to the reference desk and just check out, like, you know, a book from the 50s or 60s. Is, is there there's probably some special procedures involved, I imagine? Right, there are. Um, the the uh, Cincinnati room itself is open for anyone to come in. It actually is uh, sort of a little museum as well, since we have exhibits in there on display. But uh, you would need to come in, and uh, there will be a reference staff person there at a desk, and you would sign in. Um, you would pinpoint what materials you wanted from our from the, uh, our stacks, from the uh, rare book stacks. These are in the catalog, by the way. They're in the catalog with every other book or material that we have and so they are you can find them and find out what they are before you go in or if you come in and ask us 
we can do a search for you and find out what we have. But once you're in, you would sign in, you would provide a library card or a uh, photo ID, which we would hold while you're looking at the, the uh, book uh, that we, or material that we're bringing up from this, our stacks. So you would have to look at the material there in the room. The room is a secured room. We have, you know, security cameras. Um, we, you know, as I say, we ask for an ID. We ask for you to sign in with, you know, your contact information. So there, there is, there is security in place for these items. There are, there is a, a flat big scanner in the room, which you can use for some items that we don't deem to be too fragile. But we really don't put any restrictions on, it, on say, if you used a uh, phone, an iPhone, yeah. with a cam- uh, then you can take uh, digital photos wow. um, of the pages that you're looking at if that's uh, something you wanted to preserve. And, of course, you can take notes or whatever you need to do with pencil, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, makes you sense. Have a pen. Yeah. So how often are people looking at the really, like, you know, hundreds of hundreds of years, of years old stuff? Is that a fairly common occurrence? Is it a weekly occurrence? Maybe, maybe once a month someone comes in and says, I need to see this book from the 1820s or whatnot. How, does, how often does that happen? It's, I would argue it probably happens several times a month. In my experience, I think that somebody comes in with some kind of interest in some very old material of that nature. I think that people looking at the really old stuff, like the Bibles and the, the Book of Hours, that's a little rare. That probably only happens a few times a year. Um, and it's usually people who are kind of like exploring in the sense that they come in and say, I want to see the oldest thing you have. Yeah. Or I want to see the oldest Bible you have. Or uh, something of that nature, and then we would, you know, pull out, you know, go down and pull out some of the oldest Bible we have, or you know, the uh, Book of Hours, or some other item like that. You know, people are free to look at them; they're free to bring. We bring them up. We obviously those are, you know, very valuable treasures, so we do, you know, keep an eye on you. Well, sure. And um, and again, the, the young man that's, that, that stopped by the, the Hyde Park store and we interviewed him last summer uh, was very knowledgeable about the history of the library. And I don't if remember if he told us, but I think he, he was pretty good on his history of the library. But maybe you can refresh us. When was the library established in Cincinnati or when was the first library established in Cincinnati? And then how does it kind of go forward to where it is today? OK, we trace our origins back to 1853. Um, as the library, a public library was founded in the city as part of the legislation which created the public schools in Cincinnati or, or in the state of Ohio, I should say. So when the public schools were created, there was also a provision to have the creation of a public library in addition to that. So the two two things were seen as being part of the same mission in a way. That is, uh, public education, uh, the library would be kind of a supplement to uh, actual classroom instruction. So 1853, uh, the library was part of, I think it was in the old Mechanics Institute or, yeah, something like that. Then uh, there were, there was a definitely expansion. We moved into what was is now called the old main library it does not exist any longer but it was a very sort of converted theater space uh, that was basically right on or near the spot where the federated building is now and you've probably seen pictures of it, it had a very broad interior with stairways and, and many, many rows of books. Yeah, that's like, the famous photo. He always turns up every now and then in the old photos of Cincinnati, the big the guy on the big ladder. And it's, right. Yeah, yeah, right. okay. Yeah, yeah. He's paging a book from the yes, yes. high stacks. Okay, yes. yeah. That, that was built around the 1870s, and uh, the library used that up until 1953, and uh, that's when the, uh, we moved to our current location. That the, and of course the main library was the main thing going on. It was the only thing going on for a long time. The library didn't really get into building branches until the Carnegie libraries were funded by Andrew Carnegie, and that would have been around the uh, early 1900s. 
So then the, the few Carnegie libraries that we have, those were built at that time. So those are things like Hyde Park, Walnut Hills, you know, Cumminsville. Uh, Clifton's pretty old, isn't it? Clifton, yeah. I think it, uh, Clifton was a, uh, was a Carnegie building as well, yeah. And I think maybe Walnut Hills did, because we drive by that one on the way to the, our warehouse every day. Uh, right. It's a couple blocks from well, us. Yeah, Walnut Hills, Price Hill as well. Price Hill has an old uh, Carnegie Bell structure as well. Before this uh, current set of events, uh, the library had uh, developed a very ex- uh, expansive plan to update many of these buildings. We very we, we love our Carnegie buildings, and I think that the idea is that we want to kind of expand on them to, you know, build on what were the older structures to provide more mod a more modern space for people to use, but to maintain the old architecture as well. So it's not we're not going to try to change that, but to build on to them so that there is more space for newer activities and for more updated. Uh, uses of the library, you know, we want people to use meeting rooms. Obviously, the digital component is very, very important. Um, not only that are we providing terminals and computers for people to use in the library, but pe- the library is used as a space. As I say, you can use the Wi-Fi there and just hang out and, and do your research online, or parents bring their children down for, you know, story times, and uh, school kids come after school and they do homework or they participate in the different programs they have there. So they, we want to have spaces, you know, sort of modern looking and, and pleasant. But, you know, we're, we're certainly maintaining the traditions that we have as well. You know, a question um, just popped into my head uh, when you were talking about, you know, young people coming to use the library and families and things like that. And we were talking about the oldest books. What what is the library's plan, or how does the library handle the idea of of, uh, of changing formats? In other words, you know, in the early twentieth century, it was film, old phonograph records. How how does the library approach making sure these things are always going to be accessible for future generations? Like, how do we know? You know, JPEGs have been around for a while and MP3s, but you know, how do I know in fifty years I'm going to go to the library? <laughs> we have lost a lot of the availability to see and hear things because just because the technology has changed. I know this is an issue that librarians have been dealing with for decades now because we realize that the media medium for for you know information has been undergoing a, a lot of change, particularly with uh, digital revolution. Well, the library does buy physical copies of things, you know, we buy physical copies of books. We still buy um, physical DVDs and whatever uh, storage media that can be, you know, borrowed physically and used, you know, through readers at home and whatever. And then we provide access, in a sense, through, you know, contractual relationships with other uh, publishers and whatever music publishers and whatever, so that people can have access to music and movies and uh, ebooks. Yep. We can't exactly, you know, ourselves. Well, I suppose we could. Managing digital content is kind of difficult for would be difficult for us in the sense of like having it on site. So our duty or our, you know, concept for the future is basically to provide access to those digital media kind of on a uh, contractual basis with the providers of those materials, uh, rather than being the ultimate collectors or owners of of that material. That is a really different change in format. Obviously, the library over the years, would buy books, would buy magazines, would buy uh, records, would buy uh, CDs, whatever, any or slides or any kind of physical item that was being published, so that we would have them in our collection and we would be the provider of those of that information to people to borrowers. We obviously are going to continue that role in the future, but uh, the digital aspects of that, I think have not been worked out for libraries. I still think um, at the moment we are just 
trying to we, we basically license we buy licenses from uh, publishers and providers to make the material available to the public for free free to the public through the through you know payments from the from tax dollars essentially yeah, I see. I think. I guess speaking broadly, I, you know, I reckon there'll be, you know, at some point in the future where, you know, they'll still be able to read old physical media somehow. Even though I remember watching this old episode of um, the Buck Rogers series from the 1980s, and <laughs> I forget which century he's supposed to be in. Maybe he's in the 25th century, is it? I don't know. But um, anyway, there, there's. I remember this episode distinctly where there's there's something they call back to the 20th century where he was originally from, and uh, and they say, yeah, we have this thing here, and they they whip out a VHS tape and go, yeah, it's on this old. Uh, physical format from the 20th century and they pop it right into a machine and off and they're able to watch it i'm like well i sure hope that's the case wow that's yeah yeah quite a fantasy yes right yeah so no physical material yeah gold videotape no problem you got it right here and here i have a whole box of them in my basement i can't watch because well i can but i'm down to my last vcr that works so yeah yeah. Well, there is some virtue to it, those old books. You know, you get you don't need well, yeah, I was gonna say, additional you, technology. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, those old Bibles, you'll still be able to look at those in you know in two hundred years. We'll probably go down to the library and be yeah, show me your oldest Bible, which at that point will be you know eight hundred years old or whatever. But um, <laughs> one thing I want to talk about too is that when Lisa set this up, she had suggested a topic for discussion. And I do think it, it, it's relevant. And she said, did you you uh, had some expertise or knowledge of the nineteen eighteen flu pandemic and kind of how it compares to what we've been going through for the past couple of months here. And I, there's a lot of confusion around that you do see out there that people don't yeah. don't quite yeah. know. So it just in, in first of all, uh, the, the, the inaccurate name of the flu, you can explain that, uh, and then kind of walk us through how it affected people, you know, in Cincinnati and in, and in the Midwest. Okay, sure. Um, I kind of got interested in it because I, uh, I had actually done some work on how – the pre- actually last year, before all of this started, I had done some work on how, uh, and it was more of a genealogical interest from this group that I was uh, doing a program for, was on how infectious diseases of the past affected our ancestors. So uh, I had done a whole program on that. And then when, um, you know, the, the COVID-19 quarantine came, you know, came on, and we were all stuck at home, <laughs> and they're saying, "Well, you got to write some stuff for our blog." And I say, "Okay, I'll, I'll do something on the the Spanish flu." Or they they suggested the Spanish flu, and I thought that was that's a great great topic. The Spanish flu is called that, misnamed that actually, because the uh, and this is pretty well known or accepted by historians is that it really started mostly in the United States. That was the origin of the, of the flu. But because the United States was in the middle of the First World War, and so, so were the other countries of Europe, they were not willing to talk about it in public. And so that all newspaper uh, reporting about the flu was suppressed. So it was affecting uh, troops in barracks in the United States, in camps and whatever, but they just did not want the public to know anything about it. So when the public finally started getting information about it, and this is sort of late in the summer of 1918, they heard about it from Spain because Spain did not have any, was not part of the war, uh, was neutral. So the Spanish press started reporting on the flu uh, outbreak in their country. Uh, which was by then, you know, pandemic, it was worldwide. So the public thought, because of the lack of information from other sources, that the flu had actually originated from Spain, which was not the case. Um, it had actually uh, come from, as far as anyone knows, from the United States. So that that was the explanation of that na- misnaming. So nobody was willing. And that's how it became popularly known at, in that era. So essentially it was going on in army camps in, during the summer. I think the summer kind of it faded during the summer. But then it started reviving back around in September. And Cincinnati saw its first cases in like late September. 
But it, once they got those cases, it became a, it came on very, very suddenly. And this happened all throughout the whole country. Uh, essentially, the month of October was probably like the, uh, like an onslaught of the uh, flu that came. And basically, the health department shut down or, or instituted a quarantine, well, instituted a what you would call a, um, not a stay-at-home order, but they started shutting down venues that people would gather at, like movie theaters or shows or uh, restaurants. Actually, they didn't stop restaurants. They uh, did allow restaurants to continue, but and they did shut down the schools. So because they were... They obviously knew it was contagious, and obviously they had experience with versions of the flu before. They didn't quite, I think they had an inkling that it was a very serious version of the flu, but uh, they probably didn't know how serious it was until it really just, you know, came on very suddenly in that period, in that just in that month. So for a long period of time, there were uh, there was a shutdown of you know all these basic services that people were um, used to. You know, stores were closed. The uh, a lot of the controversies that uh, that sometimes are seen today actually came up as well. They closed down houses of worship, which was obviously you know would be a major source of contagion if people all got together. But they didn't close down the liquor stores, huh. or they didn't close down the saloons. Let's put it this way: you couldn't go in a saloon and get a drink. You had to. Uh, you could go and buy the drink and take it home with you uh, in a bottle. But so it's kind of they. It was kind of a curbside service for the uh, the saloons or the liquor stores or whatever. This offended people because, of course, they're, you know, uh, you know the. They're closing down the churches, but they're letting the boozers, you know, have their way and kind of deal. So that that offended people. That kind of got people all worked up uh, at that time. There wasn't a lot of public outcry at this time because it was right at the very end of the Second World War, and the U- U.S. troops were heavily engaged in battle at this during these weeks. So people were like almost totally focused on the war and what was going on in Europe. When you look for articles in, say, the Cincinnati Enquirer about the flu, you're finding them on page five or page six. You're not finding them on the front page. It was not a front page event. Even though they're closing down schools, they're closing down, you know, houses of worship, they're closing down. It, it it was kind of crazy in a way. And also it's sort of part of the uh, maybe a certain idea among authorities that, you know, you don't want to panic the population. You don't want to get people upset about things. You want to keep them focused and doing what they're, what they're doing um, without unduly alarming them. So the information might've been to some degree suppressed there wasn't a wartime type censorship going on. And so press, the press were very careful not to publish anything that, you know, would upset, you know, what could be perceived as upsetting the war effort. What happened? Um, so this is in October. And um, so things are shutting down. The war, the armistice is signed on November 11th. And of course, everyone is overjoyed and, all the prohibitions about the big outdoor gatherings is broken and people are running around the streets celebrating or whatever. And then right at this point, the mayor and the head of the health department decide, well, we're going to ease back on all these on these restrictions and open schools and do all this. Well, within a few weeks, they started having a major recurrence of the flu, particularly among school children who had not, since they hadn't been gathering in school, had really not been that affected up to that point. And then after that, you know, they started getting quite a number of cases. So they shut down the schools again for probably another few months. Uh, they didn't quite shut down most other things, uh, but there was a lot of, you know, 
some of the same uh, things that we see now. Like there was a lot of social distancing was they didn't use the term, obviously, but they were telling people, well, you know, don't get too close to people. Um, you see police officers and firefighters wearing, uh, you know, gauze masks, surgical masks. There's a famous picture that actually was a part of the article that I wrote that I found uh, on the National Archives website of barbers in Cincinnati wearing, you know, gauze masks that uh, in order to limit the spread of the infection. So and also things like if you see a friend, wave to them rather mm-hmm. than shake their hand, that kind of stuff. So they had a pretty good indication of uh, the because you know there, it, it, I saw a documentary uh, not too long ago on Typhoid Mary, and uh, it took them a while to figure out what was going on, and then mm-hmm. when they did, they you know they even though she didn't believe it, and a lot of people didn't understand how something like that could happen. They they it's kind of surprising when you think of early twentieth century medicine that you know they knew more than maybe we thought they they knew. And didn't know mm-hmm. what what things to do and how to contain it. How how long did this go on? I'm saying I would say that definitely into the early part of the next year. Uh, actually, the flu kind of came on uh, to some degree for about the next year or two. Uh, it wasn't quite as severe. The most severe months were October and November. But after that, it kind of uh, died down a bit. Then we had the, the resurgence that lasted into the early months of 1918, uh, 1919. Uh, then there was a little bit that happened during the winter from 1919 to 1920. And then that actually particular strain of flu I read about actually became part of the whole se- uh, part of the seasonal flu system. And it was actually around up into the 1960s, but it was just part of uh, seasonal flu after that. It had lost a lot of its virulence uh, that it had when it first came on uh, the scene. So um, I I think that people now and then were uh, used to the concept of of seasonal flu, you know, that there were always going to be a certain number of cases of flu, you know, every every, um, sort of particularly in the winter seasons when that is when they're at strongest. But this particular flu was very, was obviously a major killer. It really did kill, you know, tens of millions of people throughout the world at that time. And it is among one of the most deadliest epidemics in world history. And how did it lose its virulence just from over, just gradually over time, people building up an immunity to it and people, you know, and then subsequently it's just season after season it getting less strong that way. Is that how that works? That's partly it. Yeah. I think that's part of it is that there are fewer uh, susceptible people because of exposure to the virus. There's also things that happen like with the virus, they come, they're constantly mutating as well. At some point it may have mutated to a point where it wasn't as virulent. Okay. Uh, as, as it had been in 1918. And, you know, back then, I guess, really, your only media coverage is newspapers. There's Radio is just starting, but is primarily, I guess, newspapers is really your only source of news. Right, it is. And, uh, and because of the war, it was heavily censored, you know, during the period when the pandemic was a concern, you know, for... Um, for the most part, obviously, they couldn't suppress it when, you know, thousands of people in your city are getting sick from it. But they, you know, um, as I said, the, the main focus of, of of the press and of the of the public uh, attention was on the war. Um, it was uh, really uh, and some of the restrictions that they were put under because of the flu. Um, those were kind of kind of went along with uh, many of the restrictions that they were facing because of the war, um, you know, rationing to some degree and, you know, the need to provide, constantly provide uh, support for the troops. You know, people are, you know, providing uh, care packages for, for troops and things like that. You know, people are sort of mobilized already because of the war. So, you know, the whole... Do your civic duty, you know, don't, you know, 
go to uh, a movie theater or don't go to a, to a, a sporting event. I think those were sacrifices that people were probably just saw as more more of the same. Um, unlike today, where you know it just came and was not part of our what we expected to happen. Yeah. So did, there wasn't. It wasn't. Even though the information was muted, enough information was out there that it, that it didn't make it worse. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, any other parallels that you could see from then to what we've been going through recently? Well, I, I think, and I did point it out in my blog post, you know, there are a lot of stories about, you know, the heroic doctors and nurses who are getting sick and some of them dying from treating, you know, the many, many cases that they're seeing. Uh, that obviously, you know, we, we hear similar stories now with COVID-19. Uh, that that's something that uh, is um, certainly uh, a parallel to what happened then and and now. So there was, I, I think, I, uh, there was a concern about finding vaccine at that time, um, which was interesting. I thought, obviously, vaccines for um, flu are kind of tricky because they don't always provide permanent immunity because of as the flu viruses do mutate so often that they're hard to keep uh, keep up with. But it's interesting they were thinking of that. They didn't even, they kind of had an idea about viruses at that time. They No one actually ever saw one until they invented electron mic- microscopes in the 1930s. But they were um, cognizant that there was some kind of uh, infectious agent Back then. So were they able to develop a vaccine or did it just kind of, like you said, kind of die out on its own? Not really die out, but, you know, lose its virulence. Um, I think that uh, I think it was more the second. I don't think they came up with a vaccine uh, at that time, or at least in a timely way that would have been effective. So what are the things you've written about for uh, on the library's blog? What other areas of interest do you have? I've been working on a lot of different uh, historical topics for Cincinnati uh, for over the years that I've been working in the department. I've done, uh, as I mentioned, the Cincinnati Room is a kind of like many museums. So we uh, circulate various programs related to both the contents of the room, of the uh, our collection there, and also themes in Cincinnati history. So we've had programs on like Kenner Toys, and, uh, you know, the music, uh, the opera, building a city of music hall, those kinds of topics. I curated an exhibit that, dealing with the Roebling Bridge when it had its 150th anniversary. So I was very interested in, in that history. Also, are you familiar with the, our, 19, our 1848 daguerreotype? No. Since, oh, well, in this, I've heard of this. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I have yeah. heard of this, and I can't remember why. But yeah, but please explain. It's been in the news for, for a while. Um, we actually have had the daguerreotype for a long time, uh, but we brought it out in, into public display around uh, 2010, and it's been in the news since then. It's in the Cincinnati room. Uh, what it is is that back in 1848, uh, two photographers, we'll call them photographers because they were, but they, they were taking pictures and they took a picture, a panoramic view of the Cincinnati riverfront from Newport. They were standing in Newport and basically on top of a roof of a house and then basically took a, a wide panning view of the Ohio River and the uh, Cincinnati and the surrounding hills. And this was like a two and a half mile view that you could see. But right in the middle of the focus was the Cincinnati public landing uh, at that time, which and Cincinnati was a big hub of river riverboat traffic, you know, goods coming in and out of the city via these uh, steam paddling boats. And uh, also a lot of the prominent public buildings and 
just uh, and also back at that time, Cincinnati was a major boat building center. So one part of the area that was called Fulton, uh, it's now like along Eastern Avenue. That whole area was like a boat building uh, facility. So all of that appears in this panorama. So the library's had it for like a long time, since about the 1920s, I believe. But we finally brought it out to public display because it had, you know, their issues with this type of photography, which is called daguerreotype. Um, it's kind of photograph on metal plates. Uh, and it was basically about the earliest form of practical photography that was invented. Um, and it was kind of, when they did this, it, it was only about nine years old as a, as a technology. So we have plates. We have them on display. They're in the ori uh, original frame and matting that they were put in back at that time. And uh, you come in and look at it. What happened also was that we had the plates scanned, digitally scanned, by the George Eastman House uh, Museum in Rochester, New York, who have, you know, world authorities on historic photographs. And they put it in a special argon chamber, argon gas chamber, with, you know, with uh, non-reactive materials, so as to preserve the... Um, the plates from any type of further deterioration that would come because of the nature of the photography is kind of uh, fragile. So once we did all that, we have the plates up, set up and view in the original frame and matting, but inside this uh, argon chamber. And also next to it, we have a digital panorama, which is based on the, the microscopic scans that were made of the plates during the conservation. So you can go in there and you can zoom in and out of the city of Cincinnati uh, in the mid-19th century and look at all the stuff that was there, like the buildings and, you know, the landing, the riverboats. It's really a remarkable, remarkable scene. And so complex, you, you know, you see the first railroad station, you see um, the observatory, the first observatory that we had, brass making uh, foundries, it's uh, the churches, pretty remarkable photograph. So there's an example of what we're talking about earlier that there's, you're able to you take this old piece of uh, media and with modern technology enhance it. And mm -hmm. yeah, and, and make it accessible to people today. That's that's really cool. Um, so I have a question about the department as a whole. Uh, let's say because here at Cincy Shirts, I am I'm kind of the de facto historian, and my mm -hmm. specialty is defunct sports teams and leagues. So let's say, for example, I came I came in and said, hey, I need to find some information on because not very much exists about Cincinnati's say early football teams is a good example, mm -hmm. uh, the Celts okay. and the original Bengals of the AFL three. How hard would it be to like? I, essentially, I guess it would be mostly newspaper stuff we'd be looking for, but how hard would it be to round up information on, on something like that? It really wouldn't be that hard. Uh, particularly now, we have a way of, uh, we have a digital database on the Enquirer and the Post. So if articles about the teams were pu published in those two sources, you could do searches now and find information from the newspaper sources very, very quickly. Okay. So that would not be that would not be too hard, uh, and that is something you can do from home. You wouldn't even need oh, to come to Wow, this yeah. is well. I've been tinkering with the idea for years about writing a book, something about defunct sports leagues. There are a lot of good ones out there, so I don't know what my niche would be. But uh, would so would I also be able to get like? Would there also be national resources I could tie into from our library? Because I think I've done that uh, before a little bit, but I don't remember. Because Google News, Google scanned a lot of newspapers, but a lot of them disappear, number one. And even though they have lots of them, even when you search for something, if I go back to do a reverse search, I can't find it, even though I'm using the exact headline from the link that I have to the paper. So it's kind of a hinky system. 
And I think yeah. they've actually stopped doing it. it the, it's the Google Ar- News Archive still exists, but they're not actively updating it, and they're not, you know, repairing any you know, breaks in it or anything like that. So, you know, as a library, we, we of course have you know access through uh, interlibrary loan and right. Uh, yep. All at exactly now it's a different system. I got a book that way once. Yeah, our library used to have it, and and you guys sold it, so I had to get it from like the Akron Library, but I was able to do it through our library. So yeah, we we kind of have that system. So you we you would have access to a range of books uh, and articles, perhaps that we um, that from different sources. Okay. Um, Boy, it, it, you'd have to kind of come in and explore to some degree about okay. to see what what would be what you could work with or not. Um, it is. I, I don't know if we would provide necessarily the link up per se, except through that system. You know, if there were like articles that you needed to get from different sources, there are some. There we do have some degree of access, so it would be worth exploring okay. what we have. And I'm sure there's lots of resources for people who are curious about um, because I, this one has almost been – it's almost too well known. People think it's a big secret and then realize it's not a big secret is the uh, – of course, the, the abandoned subway is always a huge oh, yeah. topic of interest with people. Um, and I guess the, 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 two, the, two, you know, the two big teams, the two oldest teams that are still in business, of course, um, the, uh, the Bengals and Reds. I'm sure people still want to know historical things about them. And right. uh, so that's that's we probably like any book that's any book that's okay. written. We we have, I'm hmm. sure. All right, cool. Have. All right, and so it also sounds like I need to get on the uh, library website and uh, do a little more digging because, like I said, all I ever really do is I use Freegal a lot. I use uh, OverDrive, and then I have a uh, on my iPad. This is for the folks out there listening. You can get a uh, if you don't have a Kindle reader, they have a Kindle reader app. And uh, it connects to the library, so you can borrow books electronically for free, mm-hmm. and it'll open up in your Kindle. And I've done that before. Read a great book about the World Hockey Association that way. So, and then you yep. can suggest them to get books too if they don't have the book you're looking for. So, but those right. are the things I really actually use. I really got to do a deeper dive on on the website and see all the geology stuff and all this other stuff. Yeah, um, I do want to uh, direct your attention to the digital library. Do do go try that out and see what we've got. What, we have an active uh, scanning department, a digital scanning department at our library that we are actively going through and through our old collections uh, and scanning whole works and scanning, you know, photographs that we have, we're scanning sl- old slides. We're constantly on the lookout of, for new items to scan and put up for the public to look at. And it is all contained in this area called digital library and for that you don't need a library card you can do it anywhere in the world with where you have an internet connection oh wow and pull up you know what we have there we a lot of the material that we have in the cincinnati room we're actively going through that and pulling up old works that we think will be of great interest to the public and digitizing them so uh, certainly do check that out. And I, one of the things you'll find on there also is you f- will find a, a viewable uh, version of a digital version of the 1848 panorama. Oh, nice. You'll find a, a digital version of all of the plates of our uh, Birds of America by John James Audubon. Uh, that's our other big treasure. Any exhibit that we've had, we usually uh, we'll let you have access to the photos that, that appeared in that exhibit, unless they're materials that the library doesn't know. Cool. Well, I uh, before I put this episode together, uh, I will poke around on that, and then I'll tell folks on the other side of the interview here when we do the outro uh, what all I found out and uh, how y'all can access it. And uh, in the meantime, uh, we've reached the point of the show where we were asking you, like I said, I don't know if you've listened to previous episodes, but we ask each guest to uh, provide us with a, a coupon code of their choosing, and then listeners can use it to take 20% off their purchase at Cincy Shirts or OldSchoolShirts.com, and they can use that code word uh, actually each on – uh, once on each site if they want to and uh, we will let you choose that word what will the word be for the next week the, the code word for folks to save 20 percent <laughs> digital <laughs> there you go perfect i don't think we've used that one yet and if we have i will probably have to modify it but i'll let people know on the other side of the interview again if if that one will work i don't think we've used just digital as a coupon code before great um well that, that uh, thank you for doing this today um we, we learned a lot 
and okay. um, and yeah. boy, we we can't uh, we can't encourage folks out there to use our library enough. Or if you're listening somewhere else in the country, uh, use your local library. It's a great resource. You really uh, I'm a big library advocate. So I suggest everyone use your library. And again, I I, I, I didn't even know I didn't even know all the things. Like I said, I just do free gold to get me some you know free MP3s and to stream music and you know occasionally watch some stuff. But uh, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff apparently that I'm missing out on. And uh, like we found out from the previous episode that you know. You can go down to the library, you know, once everything's back to normal and uh, use it to make banners and just all kinds of stuff. So uh, the library is an amazing place. I don't think people quite understand. Yes, it is. And, uh, yes, we're hoping uh, we'll be able to get back there soon ourselves. Terrific. Okay. the public. Okay, James. Well, again, uh, thanks for doing this, and we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. in my brain after I finished that interview thinking what's going to be the playout song what's going to be the playout song and they're, they're right under my nose my favorite band there you go well them and the Beach Boys that's Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark who still make great records by the way you might only know them for If You Leave but I invite you to do a deeper dive in fact uh, you could do the uh, singles collection that came out last year called Souvenir uh, I'd swap out some songs being a super fan of course but you'll have that but other than that it's a pretty user friendly introduction to OMD uh, I do advise you to do such anyway so for most of the things we discussed uh, you can simply go to the library website and you choose eBranch then eResearch and that'll take you to the stuff like the newspaper index and the genealogy index and all that. I went on the newspaper index for just like a minute, typed in World Football League as an interest of mine and all these newspaper articles came up so I'm going to be spending a lot of time there coming up. And I think it's going to help the Cincy Shirts blog too. Also Nate Pelly was the young man we spoke to from the library last year. That was episode 85. Go back and look that one up. Uh, he gave us the more I suppose modern rundown of the library and all the services they have now uh, including like I said the thing where you can make banners and you can do all kinds of crazy stuff there. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, can't speak highly enough of our library system. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast or someone you'd like uh, to hear again, just drop us an email, podcast at cincyshirts.com, and put podcast guest in the subject line, maybe a little sentence or two about why you'd like to hear that person on the podcast or have the person back on the podcast, as the case may be. We've had a couple people on twice, John Keyswetter, the Haunted Cincinnati guy, Ronnie Salerno, so uh, we're more than happy to have people back. We have to have uh, uh, Pat Berry back. Uh, he was a hugely popular guest, so we'll see if we can get that sorted. And maybe when things are back to normal, we can invite him back to the Hyde Park Studios. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the Tri-State. If you haven't already, check out those Cincy Church podcast archives. We've got everybody from Johnny Bench to Amy Yazbeck. Just tons and tons of great episodes. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. You can find all of their music in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find Midget Tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. Lots of defunct teams like hockey, basketball, football, soccer, you name it. Old shopping centers, restaurants, radio stations, horror movie hosts. Those are very popular now. And uh, it's like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns, of course. And again, the promo code for this episode is digital. Simple as that. Digital. All lowercase, all uppercase, mix and match if you like. Shouldn't affect it. You can use that at CincyShirts.com to take off 20% and OldSchoolShirts.com. So you can use it once on each site. How about that? Get yourself some new uh, duds. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye!
wish I said goodbye.